0: Psalm number four. Psalm four says to the chief musician with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? Selah. But I know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Selah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. You have put gladness in my heart more than in the season that their grain and wine increased. I will both lie down in peace and sleep for you alone, O Lord, made me dwell in safety. All right, our sermon today is uh, Exodus 4, it's verses 18 through 23, Israel is my son, my firstborn, and uh, it's the 1st of February, I don't know if everybody's clued into that, but a new month is here, and uh, I want you to know I uh, am a certified wastewater and water treatment operator in the state of Florida, and um, I hold the highest certification in wastewater and a a lower one in water, but... um, Uh, I was probably the first person in the state of Florida today, because it's the 1st of February, to, I finished my CEUs, which are required, and then on the 1st of February, you could pay to have your license renewed. And that was the first thing I did when I got up this morning after reading the Bible was to renew my licenses. So uh, we'll pray that I never need to use those, but I think it would be a, a real crime to lose those licenses. So uh, you're looking at a continued for at least two more years, a certified wastewater and water treatment operator in <laughs> Sarasota. Actually, pretty much anywhere in the world, Florida's licenses are just accepted everywhere. But uh, uh, anyway, here we go. Exodus 4:18 through 23 says, um, So Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt, and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go, return to Egypt, for all the men who sought your life are dead. Then Moses took his wife and his two sons and set them on a donkey. And he returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the rod of God in his hand and the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all the wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let your people, let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Question for you. How many of you have heard... Some Bible teacher or preacher used the term slaying the giants in your life. Have you heard a sermon with that title? Yeah, it's catchy, isn't it? It sure makes you feel good to know that you, just like David prevailing over Goliath, can also uh, prevail over your own giants. Hooray! Hooray! Type that into YouTube. I did. And you're going to find a list of sermons with that sermon title, Slaying the Giants in Your Life. It's used as a motivational tool to tell you that you too can defeat any obstacle in your life, no matter how big, just like David did. But there is a problem with that kind of thinking, and there's a problem with looking at the Bible in that way. This same young boy who defeated Goliath spent much of his life running away from other less formidable foes. He ran from Saul, he ran from his own son Absalom, and he even ran from God's word and into the arm. ...of another man's wife. Elijah, the great prophet of Israel... ...defeated 400 prophets of Baal... ...and guess what? He then ran from a woman named Jezebel. Okay? The secret to strength isn't found in catchy phrases... ...or cliches that people throw out in church on Sunday morning. The secret to strength which will defeat any foe... ...is in trusting the Lord. And in this trust... ...when you put it in the Lord... ...it doesn't mean that your business is going to be a success... That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that your home will not be foreclosed on, nor does it mean that the cancer which affects your body has no right to be there. That's a very crummy way of trying to interpret the Lord's presence in our lives. What it means is that no matter what does happen, the promises of the Lord are greater than the afflictions that we face. Our text verse today comes from Psalm 118. It's verses 6 through 8. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I shall see my desire on those who hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Moses was weak concerning confidence in himself, but eventually the Lord got him straightened out, and he is now ready to depart from Midian and head back to Egypt. He knows that the Lord is on his side and that he will be with him through whatever they face. He also knows that as a token to him, he has the promise that he will return to the mountain of God with the people that are delivered from Egypt. In this, he can place his confidence, and the same is true with each of us. Slaying the giants is not about homes, it's not about finances, it's not about sicknesses or bad marriages. Slaying the giants is a transcendent thought that says, no matter what I do, God's word says that I am secure in him despite those things. Jesus assured us in this life that we would have trouble, didn't he? I mean, that was a promise from him. You're going to have trouble. But he also promises to deliver us us from this life to a new and a better one someday. It is the word which tells us these things. And it is the word in which we can place our trust. Moses had trust in the word of the Lord, and he is now heading out. And we should have our trust in the word of the Lord as well. It was spoken by the Lord, and so it really is the Lord that we are trusting when we trust the word. So let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is permission to leave, which is verse 18. Verse 18 begins with these words, so Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law. Moses took the flock to the west of Horeb, if you were here for that sermon, you know it. And that's where he saw the burning bush and he had his encounter there with the Lord God. In verse 3-1, the flock was mentioned twice, and yet it has not been mentioned again since then, nor will it be mentioned again. The focus went quickly from them to Israel and Moses' task of freeing them from the bondage of Egypt. After the lengthy discussion with the Lord who spoke from the bush, the narrative abruptly ends and we take on a new direction. There was no recorded ending to the conversation as so often happens in the Bible. For example, when God departed from Abraham after their conversation in Genesis chapter 17, here's what it said. It said, then he, the Lord, then he finished talking with him and God went up from Abraham. Nothing like that is recorded here. Rather, we begin these verses with the need to insert our own thoughts about what may or may not have happened. Did the bush just stop burning? Did the Lord excuse Moses and tell him everything would be okay? All we can do is speculate because all it says is, so Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law. But there is more than just a return here. The name Jethro is not spelled the same as it was in Exodus 3, verse 1, or even as it will be spelled later in this same verse. Rather, instead of Yethro, it says Yeter, The name Yeter is spelled just the same as the word which means rest or remnant, as well as the word meaning more or better. As we saw in Exodus 3, 1 through 6, the rapture of the church was perfectly pictured. The rapture implies then that the church is gone and that anyone left will be on only one of two sides. They will either be a remnant of people who are willing to forsake all for the hope of eternal life, or they will be one of the innumerable people who will trade eternity for their temporary existence. The spelling of the name Yeter is showing us this. Aberim says this about the notion of a remnant which is found in the Bible. Listen carefully to what they say because I'm going to make a point about what they say. It seems that the most fundamental idea of the biblical remnant, which is a group of people that are left over, is that the remnant is not simply an anonymous sample of the larger collective it is a remnant of, but rather a designated selection that kept the collective together in the first place. And it certainly indicates in what grave danger the world is and how possible the events foreseen by rapture theology, which we here at Aberim publications generally refute, might come to pass. It's worth note that Aberim wrote this even though they refute the idea of a rapture. In other words, their words perfectly explain the picture of the rapture that we saw and then a world divided by a remnant and yet they don't believe in a rapture. Why is that important? Because they are completely unbiased in their analysis then, which fully supports what they refute. So they aren't making stuff up in order to fit their opinion about the rapture. The different spelling of the name Jethro to Jethur is given to show us that the only thing that will save the complete annihilation of Egypt is the Hebrew people and the mixed multitude who stick with them. In picture, then, only the faithful Jews and the Gentiles of the end times who are willing to call out to Christ will save humanity from complete annihilation. And that's the picture that we see all through the Bible. I believe that this one simple name spelled differently shows us all of this. The name Jethur, representing the remnant or the better part which is saved through the trials of whatever type they may be, means excellence. And that is an excellent picture of those who are favored by the Lord who saves. Each name, Reuel, Jethro, and Jether, have been given to show us a relationship of people to Christ. And it's all unfolded so beautifully in these past couple of passages. Verse 18 continues, And said to him, Please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. Having been adopted into the family of Reuel by marriage to Zipporah, And having stayed for 40 years in the land, Moses asks permission to depart from the clan. His reason is to return to my brethren who are in Egypt. The word here translated as brethren can mean literal brothers, it can mean an extended family, and it can also mean countrymen. He's asking to return to Egypt, which in Hebrew means the land of double distress, in order to return to his people. Though he doesn't tell Jether this, it is a return in order to deliver them. Notice how Moses says nothing about the account from the bush. An entire chapter and a half are recorded concerning the talk between the Lord and Moses, and yet it is never mentioned when he returns to ask his leave of Jether. This is normally attributed by scholars to Moses' humility and not wanting to be a braggadocio about the great task on which he was being set. However, Adam Clark adds in a very interesting concept which fits well with the next verse and also with what will occur during the tribulation period of the future. Here's what Adam Clark says. If once imparted to the family of his father-in-law, that means this news about him going to deliver um, Israel from Egypt. If once imparted to the family of his father-in-law, the news might have reached Egypt before he could get thither. And a general alarm among the Egyptians would in all probability have been the consequence as fame would not fail to represent Moses as coming to stir up sedition and rebellion, and the whole nation would have been armed against them. It was therefore essentially necessary that the business should be kept secret. Clark's thinking is mostly correct. The plagues that are coming upon Egypt will come upon an unsuspecting nation, and the plagues that are coming upon the world during the tribulation period will come upon an unsuspecting world. Now one must wonder how this could be possible when the Bible is written and it tells exactly what's coming. How is that possible? But the Bible also tells us this in 2 Thessalonians chapter two. It says the coming of the lawless one is in accordance with the work of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The plagues will be by the hand of God, but neither Pharaoh of the past nor the Antichrist of the future is going to accept that. Utter ruin will come upon those who have utterly rejected the Lord. Verse 18 continues, And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. His response to Moses is lech leshalom, which is exactly translated as go in peace. So good job, translators. The approval is given, and Moses has been granted his leave to return to Egypt, the land of double distress. But now, at the end of the same verse that we've been looking at, the name changes from Jether to Jethro. Though Jethro carries much the same meaning as the name Jether, The two names have been given and they've been used to give us a clue concerning the end times. There will be a remnant and there will be a time when the remnant is ready to be delivered. Just as God knew the perfect time for Moses to return to Egypt, he will know the perfect time to accomplish his deliverance of the tribulation saints. Someday Christ will return, resolve to return, once again to his people Israel. To be with them his heart does yearn, as the words of scripture to us do tell. And when they call on him in spirit and in truth, he will be there to give them aid and strength. They will be like a man of vigor in his youth when he returns to them in due length. May it be soon, O wayward Israel, that you call out to God to remove your heavy chains. He will return to you as the tide on the shore does swell when you cry out to Jesus, yes, our God reigns. Our second thought today, the rod of God, which is verses 19 and 20. Verse 19, now the Lord said to Moses in Midian. Again, Jehovah is introduced into the narrative. He spoke to Moses at Horeb and gave him directions concerning the duties which lay ahead of him. But now he speaks once again to Moses in Midian, the place of judgment. Each word is given to show us pictures of Christ. If it weren't so, it would have said in the previous verse that Moses returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, in Midian. But it waited until now to mention Midian. The order of the introduction of the names and places is perfectly selected to show an intricate series of steps is being followed. There is the church age, which happened after Israel rejected Christ. We saw that. Then the people of Israel cry out to the God, and he in turn remembers his covenant with them. We saw that. After that, there's the rapture of the church. We saw that. Then God purposes to deliver his people, which we saw, and after that, he sends forth the directive to deliver them. Step by step, the order of the account of the past is given to show the order of what will come about again in the future. Verse 19 continues, Go, return to Egypt, for all the men who sought your life are dead. Now these words take us right back to Exodus 2, verse 23, which said, Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. The narrative of the burning bush followed immediately after those words, but it doesn't necessarily follow that the actual account of the bush followed after the words of Exodus 2.23. They could have happened before, they could have happened simultaneously with, or they could have happened afterwards. So when the king of Egypt died in chapter 2, it may be what the Lord is referring to here in chapter 4. From this verse, it appears that the king of Egypt died after the account of the bush. But the order is given in scripture to show a logical sequence of events which will come about in the greater picture of redemptive history, not necessarily a chronological account. And that's why it's important to look for phrases like after that time or on the next day. When you see those in the Bible, they tell us that things are chronological. If they're missing, then it's possible and more than probable that they're not chronological. In the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, this is important so that we can see what Jesus did and when he did it. Because if not, then we can get all of our ideas mixed up about Jesus. But if you follow when it says on the next day or the next morning or something, you'll be able to more properly fit in what's going on. And that's important because Matthew says one thing, Mark says another, Luke says another, and sometimes they don't seem to be cohesive. They're telling the story of Christ in a different perspective and for different reasons. And so that when somebody says on the next day, we can take that from Matthew and we can put it with Luke and know when it happened. And then we get a harmony of the gospels. God is looking for people to research his word. In return, he gives us all of the assurance that we need to feel that everything is under control. When people email you or they call you with a question concerning a verse, it's because they have a need. Sometimes it's a need to be reassured about God's goodness. Sometimes people want to know if what they heard from the pastor on Sunday morning is right or wrong. And sometimes a person might need to be reassured that what they're reading is not a contradiction of something else in the Bible. And I'll tell you, that's very important because if someone thinks there is an a error or a contradiction, then the Bible no longer has the same value in their eyes that it once did. To know the details is to be sound in one's faith. All of the squishy words in a sermon about how much God loves you really means nothing at all if the Bible has errors. If there are errors in the Bible, then how do we know that the one of those errors isn't the verse about God's love for us? People say, God loves me. Well, how do you know that? There's errors in the Bible. That verse is wrong. Verse 20, then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey and he returned to the land of Egypt. In contrast to the horse and the mule in the Bible, which are associated with kingly rule and periods of war, the donkey is associated with what? Humility and peace. Here, Moses is returning to deliver the people of Israel from the hand of Pharaoh. And yet he's coming to them after having placed his wife and sons on a donkey. The contrast couldn't be more striking. He has abided by the words of Jethro to go in peace. Also in the Hebrew, it says the donkey rather than a donkey. It is probable that it's worded this way to show that this is his personal donkey upon which he sets them. While they ride, he will walk along leading them on foot. Notice here too that it mentions both his wife and his sons in the plural. But so far only one, Gershom, has been mentioned. It won't be for another 14 chapters of the Bible that the name of the next son, Eliezer, is given. The name Eliezer, which means God of help, is explained by Moses in chapter 18 when he says this, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Unlike Gershom, despite him being alive, there's no record of his birth or his name to this point. It is things like this that show us that when a name is given, it is given for a reason and it's given for a picture of something else. There was no reason to mention either the birth or the naming of Eliezer, and so the Bible doesn't bother with it. Every word is selected to show us Christ or his plan of redemption. If something would interfere with that, it simply is not mentioned. This is why Jesus could say in John chapter 5 to the leaders of Israel that the words of Scripture testify to him. Because they do, every word has been selected more carefully than the finest implements of the most precise watch or the most complex computer. The Bible is the most marvelous and precious treasure that we could ever possess. And yet we find more pleasure in watching football on Sunday than we do reading the Bible. Get up and read your Bible, go to bed and read your Bible and think on it throughout the day. Verse 20 continues, And Moses took the rod of God in his hand, The phrasing in this verse is precise. It says in the Hebrew that he took the rod of the God in his hand. The Bible is specifically pointing this out for emphasis. It is a set of words that would otherwise be completely unnecessary unless it is showing us something specific. When he gets to Egypt and does all of the miracles, he's going to do it with this rod. Therefore, it would be obvious that he brought the rod along. Saying this here is actually no different than saying he put on his sandals and took them with him to Egypt, unless it is asking us to focus on the significance of the rod. The rod of the God is a picture of the power of the Lord. It will be the implement by which the wondrous works of God will be wrought. But it isn't the mere rod which accomplishes the miracles. Rather, it is the power of God of which the rod is emblematic. The definite article here is intended to show us that this rod is set in contradistinction to the false rods of the gods of Egypt. This is the rod of the God. Think of it, just think of it. Moses is crossing the wilderness with a wife and his children while they're on a donkey and he's carrying a shepherd's rod in his hand. And yet in this unlikely appearance is found the one person who will issue forth all of the great miracles of God which have been discussed and which have been analyzed for 3,500 years. And in this seemingly humble rod is found all of the power and all of the authority to effect those great miracles. It is truly astonishing. As the great Bible scholar Cale says, Poor as his outward appearance is, yet he has in his hand the staff before which Pharaoh's pride and all of his power must bow. The rod of God Filled with power and might, imagine the terrors in each awesome sight. The power of God is like a double-edged sword. It cuts to destroy in some while others it does save. Great and terrible is the display of the Lord, and the judgment is rendered on how we behave. For those who are the redeemed, the wonders are great indeed. To see God's hand in such an awesome display of power. But for those who reject him, he will finally proceed to come after them with terrors in the final judgment hour. Our third thought today is, I will harden his heart. Verses 21 through 23. Verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand. In chapter three, Moses was given three signs to do for the elders of Israel. Those signs are not what the Lord is telling Moses about here. They were given for the purpose of validating his call before Israel, not to convince Pharaoh of anything. The wonders he speaks of here were mentioned later in chapter 3, in verse 20, where it says this. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all of my wonders, which I will do in its midst. After that, he will let you go. The word for miracles comes from the Hebrew word mofet, which speaks of something out of the ordinary course of nature. This corresponds with the Greek word, which is tarata, which means a portent. These portents would be unusual phenomena, either natural or supernatural, which cry out for an explanation. It is these which have been granted to Moses to accomplish, but the Lord says that they are wonders which he has put in your hand. The hand holds the rod, and the rod is emblematic of the power of God. Therefore, it is the granting of authority symbolized by the rod in his hand. Verse 21 continues, but I will harden his heart. I will harden. What does that mean? It is one of the most controversial subjects found among scholars, and its meaning will actually affect one's overall theology concerning the work of Christ in a person's life. Does God choose people for salvation apart from their free will, or is free will a consideration in one's salvation? The I here in Hebrew is emphatic. I will harden his heart. But even that has to be taken and considered against the effect of the wonders which are wrought. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart is ascribed in a variety of ways during the next six chapters. Sometimes it says, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. At other times, it's ascribed to Pharaoh directly. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And at other times, it is ascribed to the action of the heart of Pharaoh itself. In this, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is ascribed to Pharaoh himself 10 times, and it is ascribed to the work of God 10 times. Uh, uh Therefore, this is telling us something about human nature in relation to the work of God. They're synonymous in the sense that they are one in the same operation, which is being viewed from a different perspective. And to understand this, we can think of the effects of heat on two different substances. So we're gonna pick wax and clay. When heat is applied to wax, what happens? It softens, it melts. When it is applied to clay, what happens? It hardens. That's correct. The source of the heat might be, we'll say, the sun. That would be a metaphor for God. The heat itself would be a metaphor for the miracles that are performed. And the wax in the clay would be metaphors for either a receptive heart or a non-receptive one. Okay? Okay. As will be seen in the coming account of the plagues, it is Pharaoh's self-determined will which has the priority throughout the wonders, and therefore the Lord's hardening influence presupposes the non-receptive, self-willed state of Pharaoh. This is no different than a person who is in a union. If you've ever worked with anybody that's in a union, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. He refuses to take out the garbage at work because it's not in his job description, right? And yet, What does he do at home? He willingly takes out the garbage. Why? Because he's married. And so it's not in his job description at work, but at home, maybe it is. And plus, he might do it for a sweetheart anyway. So you see, there's a contrast in how he's working. At work, the more pressure he receives from his boss, the more he hardens himself. In the end, and even though he's only harming himself towards his boss, he simply becomes more obdurate and he becomes more bullheaded. The fact is that the Lord does not come into humanity and zap a heart and make it hard. Rather, he allows us to follow our own perverse course and our own perverse path, even if it harms us. Paul explains this exactingly in Romans chapter one. First in verse 18, he shows how man willingly suppresses the truth of the knowledge of God. Here's what he says. For the wrath of God is revealed against heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God didn't make them do that. They're willingly hardening themselves against the Lord. Eventually, as a result of that, God gives them over fully, as Paul notes in verse 28 of Romans 1. It says, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. As man sins, God withdraws the light of revelation from the mind because this is how we have been constructed. In the same way, when we withhold any natural affection at all, we'll pick compassion. Eventually, it will simply die away. If we have compassion on little puppies, and then one day we say, I've just got too many puppies. I can't have compassion on puppies anymore. You start to harden towards having compassion on puppies. And finally, it just fades away from you, and you no longer have that compassion. This is the way that we're constructed. If it doesn't soften the heart, it will, by default, harden the heart. And this is exactly what we see in Pharaoh. The first miracles are all lesser miracles, even things that Pharaoh's magicians can do. By the time the greater miracles come, Pharaoh is so willingly hardened against the Lord that it is said that the Lord hardens him. The reason is because the Lord continues to throw more at him in his already self-hardened state. The same word in Hebrew, which is chazak, which is translated as hardened here, is used in a positive way many times in the Old Testament. A memorable one comes from Joshua chapter 10. Here's what it says. Then Joshua said to them, do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Be strong, that's the word right there, be strong and of good courage, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies among whom you fight. Nobody in their right mind would even think that Joshua is telling the people to be hardened or that the Lord is purposely hardening them. Instead, he is saying, be hardy. And he's telling them that as an encouragement, not as an act of action. The Lord is not making them hardy. Rather, the Lord's words through Joshua are encouraging them to be hardy the hardening of pharaoh's heart is a self-inflicted wound which was known it would happen before it happened as clark says on this god gave him up to judicial blindness so that he rushed on stubbornly to his own destruction and there's a reason why god would choose to allow this verse 21 continues so that he will not let the people go the hardening of pharaoh's heart had a purpose. And that purpose was so that Pharaoh would not let the people go. And by not letting the people go, there would be more glory revealed. And in that revelation, there would be yet more hardening, which would bring about a more glorious action. This is stated explicitly in Exodus chapter 7. The third verse says this, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. As all of this pictures judgment on an unrepentant world and the false gods in the end times, all we need to do is think of the world around us right now and see how deserved it is. The world is a cesspool of enmity towards Christ and towards the love of God which is found in Christ. It is ripe for judgment, and as judgment comes, the world will see his marvels displayed, but they won't repent for each rejection, he will be seen all the more righteous in their final judgment and condemnation. And this is exactly said in Revelation chapter 16, the ninth verse. And men who were scorched with great heat, think of the plagues, and they blasphemed the name of God who had power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. God will either receive glory actively from us in voluntary worship or he will receive it passively through the judgment of those who voluntarily refuse to worship him. Either way, God will receive the glory that he is justly due from his creatures. Verse 22, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. This statement, which is being said to Pharaoh, would be perfectly and completely understood by him. The office of Pharaoh and the person who held that office was known as the son of Ra, or the son of the son. To Pharaoh, the son was a god, and he believed that he was the son of this god. This alone would be enough to bring about an immediate hardening of Pharaoh's heart, and the Lord knew it. Thus, even though it is Pharaoh's choice, the Lord can rightly say, I will harden his heart. The sonship of Israel is something that permeates the Bible, absolutely permeates it. It is used literally as well as pictorially. In Hosea 11, verse 1, it says this, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. This was literally fulfilled at the Exodus, and it's also cited by Matthew as a parallel in a picture of Christ who was taken to Egypt after his birth to save him from the wrath of Herod. Too many scholars here say that these words, Israel is my son, my firstborn, means that Israel was simply as dear to the Lord as a son. But this is not what it says at all. It says that Israel is my son. And then it designates him as his firstborn. This is a divine sonship, which is spiritual in nature. And however it came about, it came about through a purchase. This is seen in Deuteronomy 32, verse 6, where Moses tells the people that it is the Lord who bought them. It is a national purchase of a people to be his own special treasure, which is exactly what they're called in Deuteronomy 14. He says, they're my special treasure. But in these words is something that is normally overlooked. By saying that Israel is the Lord's firstborn, it presupposes that more sons will come. This is dealt with in immense detail in the New Testament. As a people, Israel was admitted into the work of Christ in advance of his coming. As a people, we are admitted into the work of Christ after the completion of his work. Each, whether from Israel or from the nations, is still saved individually by faith, but all fall under the right of admittance because of the work of Jesus Christ. When faith is exercised, then one becomes a child of God through adoption. Verse 23, so I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. A contrast to Israel's sonship will now be made, but before it's made, a reason is given that Pharaoh should let him go. It is that Israel may serve the Lord. The word for serve here has several meanings. It can also mean to worship, and so some translations, some of you may have that in front of you right now. It'll say to worship him, but it also means to work. This is how it is used to describe the Israelites and their labor under the Egyptians in Exodus chapter 1. And so a contrast is being made. In essence, the Lord is saying, you will let him go from his service under you so that he can come and serve me. But the service is a form of worship, as we're gonna see in the chapters ahead. And it is this to which man was and to which man is called to do. At the beginning, right at the beginning, the Bible says that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. However... Based on the context, those words, tend and keep, have a much more accurate meaning, which is to serve and to worship. This is the intent of scripture. It is to show how God has developed a plan to free man from bondage in order to return him to the state that he once was in when he was first placed in the Garden of Eden. On the last page of the Bible, this is realized. There in Revelation chapter 22, it is noted that man will both serve and worship the Lord God for all eternity. This verse right here that we're looking at is a stepping stone along that path. The Lord has a plan to deliver Israel for this purpose and is using it as a greater picture of man's deliverance from the bondage of sin and to the devil who controls us now. But once again, we will come and we will serve and worship our creator instead of the bondage that we're in. And verse 23 finishes with these words. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son... Your firstborn. The contrast is now made. If you refuse, your penalty will be commensurate with the request that I have made. A son for a son is the offer. But you got to note this that it is not recorded as having been spoken to Pharaoh actually until Exodus 11, verse 5. By then, Pharaoh's heart will be so hard that he will refuse, even at the high cost which is stated. Each plague was designed to build upon the next further hardening pharaoh's heart in order to lead to this final terrible plague but when the lord accomplishes something he makes sure that it is done and it is complete if we can then equate this to the end times the judgment upon the world will be absolute but and this is personally important to each one of us if we harden our own hearts we are the ones who will suffer because of it some of us here in this room today are saved But if we allow a root of bitterness to enter into our walk with Christ, what's going to happen? We're going to lose heart, we're going to lose joy, and we will lose fellowship. And in the end, we will lose eternal rewards when we come before him for judgment. But some of us in here might not be saved at all. We haven't yet called out to Christ for his healing hand in our lives. We hear the call and we say, "Maybe, maybe later, maybe next time I'll respond to the call. Eventually, we just ignore the words completely. Our heart has become so calloused that the Spirit's wooing no longer stirs us. And before this happens, I would hope that you would soften your heart and you would allow Christ to come into you and to save you. And so I'd ask of you just another moment to explain how you can do this. The Bible shows us very clearly, as we're seeing in these plagues on Egypt and all of the things that are coming, that there is a disconnect between God and man. That disconnect is sin. And it must be judged and these plagues are picturing the judgment on the sin of Egypt and also picturing the greater judgment upon the world of sin at the end times. But that sin was dealt with at a point in human history. When Jesus Christ was in the Garden of Eden, he said, Father, take this cup from me, but not your will, but m- not my will, but your will be done. And what did he do? He said, I will drink this cup if you want me to. And he did, he drank it down. All of the sin of the world is potentially placed on Jesus Christ. It is all on him. He took God's wrath in our place and he went to the grave because of it. He died in his physical body, but death could not hold him because he was without his own sin. And so a transfer is made, which is just astonishing if you think of it. He came out of the grave because he had no sin and sin is, the wages of sin is death. But our sin went to the cross on him. And so our sin is gone in the grave with him. It is completely washed away because of the work of Jesus Christ. And all we need to do is ask him for it. Lord, I can't save myself. I have sin in my life and I need you to take it away. Then he will do it. He'll forgive you of every single thing that you've ever done. As we saw that tract that Paul read earlier about that woman that had killed how many people. She was on death row and she received Jesus Christ and she just needed that final reassurance before she went off to eternity. Even murder, somebody that's killed people can be forgiven because of the work of Christ. All sin, all sin in human history is potentially put on Christ, but it's not actually put on him. If you don't accept his forgiveness, your sin remains and you will die in your sins and you will be eternally separated from God the Father. That is what the Bible teaches. So today, now is the time of God's favor. Today is the day of salvation. Ask Christ to forgive you. He will forgive you, and he will give you that eternal life that can never be taken away again. The sin is gone. Our closing verse today is Proverbs 28. It's the 14th verse. Happy is the man who is always reverent, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. There you go. Pharaoh's going to find that out in the next few chapters. Next week is Exodus 4. It's verses 24 through 31. Interesting set of verses i called it, it's actually two little paragraphs. The first one is a husband of blood. The second one is a divine visitation. And then I've got to tell you what, people are always asking me about what is the meaning behind the first couple verses, a husband of blood. If you know that those verses, if you don't, it's like 24 through 26 maybe, something like that. Read them. See if you can figure out what is being said there. Then I've got to tell you what you read a hundred different scholars, they all have a hundred different answers on it. It is a very complicated set of verses. Why did God include that in there? And I'm going to tell you next week, and I assure you that it's correct. I'm supposed to smile about that because I'm disagreeing with a hundred other scholars. But anyway, I, I am certain that we have the right answer to this. I am certain of it. And when you hear it, Go read all of the scholars you can this week. Read up on those verses. And when you hear it next week, I think you're going to see why it's in there. But it has to be taken in context with the dispensational model, which nobody ever does. And once you see how God is unfolding these events through the life of Moses, I think you're going to appreciate next week's sermon, or at least the first couple verses. And then after that, the divine visitation, interesting stuff as well. All right. I want to tell you this, that at the end of David's life, he faced a terrible trial. Anybody know what? Trial he had right towards the end of his life. The Bible tells us that when he was covered, even when he was covered, he could never get warm. He couldn't do it. He was cold all the time. David did not get up and slay the giant of his affliction. Instead, he trusted in the greater provision of the Lord, the eternal promises of which he would someday partake. So let's be sure to follow the examples of great men like Abraham, like Moses and David, who kept their hearts soft entrusted the word of the Lord through affliction, through great difficulties, all of these things which presented themselves before them. And you can do it as well. Keep your heart soft to the things of the Lord. And I'll tell you that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. And even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part those waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? I have a poem to today for you called Israel is my son, my firstborn. So Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and to him said, Please let me return, let me go to my brethren who are in Egypt, among whom I was bred, and see whether they are alive still. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace as you will. Now the Lord to Moses and Midian said, Go return to Egypt, for all the men who sought your life are dead. Then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey, as we understand, and he returned to Egypt, the land, and Moses took the rod of God in his hand. Then the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, the land, see that you do all these wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart as you know, so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. This is my spoken word. So I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me, I do warn. But if you refuse to let him go, even so, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, it is true, but it was done by him in a passive way. When Pharaoh refused the Lord's word to do, his heart grew hard and harder each day. Such is how sin affects our lives. It ruins the person that we should be. It affects our family, our children, our wives, and it also affects each of us personally. And so don't let your heart grow hard towards the Lord, but rather draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. Walk closely with him and keep in his word. This is the thing that he wills for us to do. Such is the nature of our gracious God that he will run to us when sin we do eschew, and we will be content and joyful on the road we trod because he is ever faithful and true. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for these wonderful words. A little complicated today as far as what's going on, but in the end, we see with absolute certainty that things are unfolding exactly as you had intended. And all of these precious little treasures, the name of one man being changed in the middle of a verse, why are they there, Lord? They're to instruct us and to show us of you and your great work for us and also of the things that are coming in the future. That you will protect your people, Israel, and you will protect the mixed multitude who stick to them and that call out to your name. Even in the worst time which this world will ever, ever face, you are faithful to the people who call out to you. Give them strength, Lord. We pray this now because we won't be here to pray for them at that time. We pray now that you will give the people of the world strength to be willing to endure whatever, to make it through to the end and to be found Acceptable to you as they stand before you. Give them that strength, Lord. And thank you for each person here. We pray for all of the needs that uh, have been laid before us. Pray especially for that woman who's facing the uh, uh, possible loss of her daughter and uh, how she lost another daughter just a few years ago. And we would ask that you would be with this situation and help restore her to health. And Lord, we pray for Jim and Linda as they're traveling that they'll have a good time and a fun time and a safe time and they'll be back with us next Sunday. And uh, we thank you for every good and kind blessing that you've given us. So many you've given to us. We love you, we praise you, we exalt you. We do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul writes these words from the book of 1 Corinthians for, uh, concerning the Lord's Supper. For I receive from the Lord that which I also deliver to you, that on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And he would have given thanks over it by saying, Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord, O God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch Ata Adanialohenu Bore Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty Blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body in the blood of Jesus Christ. The body in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body in the blood of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end, amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this table that you've given us. Thank you for the promise of your return. Thank you so much. We love you, we praise you, we exalt you. In Jesus' name, amen.